From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. In early April 2020, we hosted our annual Global Business Leaders Forum. This year, we held the forum online and focused the first day on the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on business. Martin Hurt, a senior partner in our Greater China office and the global co-leader of the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, opened the forum with a discussion on how we can get ahead of the next stage of the crisis. Here are the highlights from Martin's session, including his responses to several questions he received from forum attendees. Sean, thank you very much for the introduction. Thank you very much for joining today's session. We are very conscious that business might not be the only thing on your minds, and we very much appreciate that you take the time to have the conversation about how to get ready for the next stage of the crisis. We wanted to first talk about the uncertainty we're facing right now and how to think about it, how to frame it. We then want to talk about some of the particularities of what that means for what you do now and how you might want to change the way you operate your business and your teams in order to be able to face the wall of issues that's heading our way in the next few weeks and months. Let us get started with the uncertainties. Everybody around the world is trying to process now the virus. It started in Wuhan, went from there to China, to Taiwan, Hong Kong, Korea in particular. Then it went to Europe, to Italy, Spain, France, Germany. Now it is on the rise in the U.S., India, and Africa. When I say we're trying to process the virus, it means figuring out how to stop the spread through lockdowns, how to deal with the health issues. We can use modern technologies to reconnect and continue. Not everybody is so lucky. We believe that if the lockdowns last for too long, the impact of the economic shock could be as big or even bigger of what we're experiencing through the virus itself. So we concluded that we need to look at both. We need to look at how to stop the virus, and we need to figure out how to actually help the economy without structural damage and get out of it as quickly as possible. When we look at the shape of the crisis to come, we see that two imperatives are driving our response. The first one is to safeguard our lives. We do need to contain this new pathogen. And that means, one, suppressing the virus as fast as possible, so getting the curve down. Second, expanding the treatment and testing capacity for us to identify people who have been infected, to isolate them, and to give them the best treatment possible. And that includes lifting our healthcare capacity. And thirdly, finding cures, treatments, drugs, and vaccines to cut off the tail of the virus as quickly as possible. The second imperative is to safeguard our livelihoods. And that means supporting people and businesses very immediately who are affected by the lockdown. Our governments have responded at unprecedented speed and unprecedented scale. You think about the $2 trillion package approved in the U.S., the large share of GDP that Germany is pumping into the immediate response. Uh, it is 
truly unprecedented. Secondly, we need to figure out how to get back to work safely as quickly as possible. The lockdowns are what's damaging our economy now. What we need to recognize, though, is that while the lockdowns may last for two weeks, four weeks, two months, they will only suppress the virus. The virus will still be here. It is very optimistic to presume that vaccines will be available within six to nine months. So there will be a period of time where we have to go back to work while the infection risk is still high. So one of the most important topics overall will be how to actually develop protocols and methods to get us back to work while the virus is still around. And thirdly, we need to figure out how to steepen the curve of recovery when we try to get away from the trough of the crisis that's hitting us in these weeks. Whether you assume a two-month lockdown or a four-month lockdown will make the difference between an 8 and a 13% economic shock. This is much more severe than the global financial crisis and much steeper than the Great Depression in the 30s. We have tried to frame the crisis and frame the economic impact in scenarios that help us plan and make contingency plans. The way we're thinking about this is that on one axis, we have the virus spread and the public health response. What are we doing to battling the virus? And how effective are the measures that we're taking? We're seeing, in an optimistic case, a rapid and effective control of the virus. I think Asian countries prepared by SARS in 2003 for similar events have responded very quickly and have been able to get the virus under control at pretty impressive speeds. In Taiwan, in Hong Kong, they were able to stop it within the first few hundred infections initially. Both and Korea are now experiencing a resurgence of the crisis, so we'll have to see how the second phase of the crisis management there goes. On the horizontal axis, we have the knock-on effects on our economies. The virus and the health response are the lockdowns, and the economic policy response is what our governments are going to do in order to cushion the initial blow and to then accelerate the recovery. Three scenario, one, highly effective interventions. Uh, we're going to bounce back. Uh, the lockdowns are going to be short enough to not have any contagion to the rest of the economy. The second, partially effective interventions. The response prevents the worst for many businesses and people, and the recovery is more U-shaped. Or we have ineffective interventions, which would result in great difficulties to recover from this and would take a long time. We'll be back in a moment with more of Martin's presentation. Because the coronavirus pandemic is changing so rapidly, we encourage you to visit www.mckinsey.com forward slash coronavirus for McKinsey's latest thinking on the COVID-19 pandemic and its implications for business and society. Now back to Martin. We believe that uh, countries, depending on their health response and the effectiveness of their stimulus, will almost inevitably end up in different places. The hope is innovation. We have innovation pick up at an unprecedented speed. We, we see now things happening in 24 hours that usually take months. 
whether it's developing ventilators by people who do fans, who bring out masks that can be used to help people breathe, uh, and they think they can produce thousands a day uh, over the next few weeks. We saw scientists come up with the realization that most ventilators are over-designed and can actually be used not just for one patient, but if you have the right tubing, you could actually go with up to seven patients for one. And everybody's experimenting, but at a speed that's very, very encouraging. What's also noteworthy is that these innovations will hopefully help us shorten the time it takes to stop the virus and to get back to work. We have seen that governments are starting to uh, at least temporarily suspend certain regulations with respect to collaboration between competitors in critical sectors to make sure that the vaccines get developed as quickly as possible, that treatments get developed as quickly as possible, and that the capacity of our hospital system, and especially ICUs, is ramped up as quickly as possible. Uh, they can do things that in normal times would not be allowed to accelerate innovation. Um, we saw companies share their ventilators design with the rest of the world. Countries are starting to get their heads around that relatively slowly. And the reason is that most governments are focused on trying to figure out how to stop the virus spread and have an effective public health response. I think people are accelerating innovations right now out of their own initiative. Time is of the essence. None of us has seen anything like that in our lifetimes. And that our response, therefore, should be preparing for something that we have not experienced before. And that actually is underscored also by the initial stock market reaction. We have seen similar drop-offs in previous crises, especially in countries where there were severe financial crises. Uh, India, Argentina, most of Asia, 97. But we have not seen a lot of these types of reactions in our stock market in recent memory. Now, in the stock market, there's also a lot of psychological factors and quant trading and other aspects that might actually drive the stock market performance uh, in sharper spikes than the actual economic response. But you see that the stock market at least has already reacted in a very pessimistic way. What should we do right now as business leaders? The realization that the number of issues that is headed our way might be of unprecedented proportions is not implausible. You have seen the virus coming. It started in January. We looked at it. It started in February. We looked at it. People were still traveling. Only in the February, early March, we started taking some serious measures in the West. It was really a crisis reaction in slow motion. Why? Well, because crises that are on exponential curves always look harmless in the beginning and then get worse very, very quickly. We're afraid that something similar is happening on the side of the economic crisis. The number of issues that's going to come towards us is also going to explode exponentially, and we might have to change the way we are operating. I've taken a bit of a lesson out of the book of the military. Military organizations are organizations that are super experienced at dealing with super high-scale crises where they have casualty rates not of 2 or 4%, but of 75% in their scenarios. They also have crisis teams. You have crisis teams for sure in your company already, so I don't need to tell you how to operate a crisis team. You know how to do that. They're managing the day-to-day. -day. They're ensuring the cash position of the company, the balance sheet stabilization. They're making sure that the worst supply chain and other issues are being taken care of. However, the military operates differently. They have that sort of a crisis team as well. They call it the ops team usually. 
but they also have something they call the plan ahead team. And that is a team that doesn't deal with the emergencies. It pulls together information, builds scenarios, devises actions for each of the scenarios, and then makes recommendations to the decision maker of how to act. It is a team of people who helps the commander to think through all horizons of the crisis. And that's a big difference. It's not the strategy team that sits in the corner somewhere and thinks about what happens in two years. The plan ahead team plans across all horizons simultaneously. So let me give you an example. It might be that you're in the US and you have to decide whether you take the stimulus given by government. That seems like an obvious yes in a scenario where your business might be threatened through a long-term crisis. That's what many companies in the US did in 2008, 2009 as well. Many of them then realized that the crisis was not as severe for their own business, and therefore they might not have needed the stimulus package, but they were already operating other incredibly stringent conditions that the stimulus had given to them. And it took them a while and at great pain to actually come out of that stimulus package again. You might already have to do a few scenarios and think this through. Similarly, if your suppliers are running out of capacity or your own um, uh, business is going gangbusters right now because you're in one of the lucky sectors that produces hydrogen products or uh, produces uh, healthcare products. What if then there is a big demand cliff that you're expecting three months from now? How do you deal with that? And the one to two year horizon, how is the return journey going to come out? How is your industry going to look? What does that mean for what you do right now? When you talk about what will happen going forward, uh, it's going to be one of the most interesting aspects of this crisis to see how many of the changes that we're implementing now in terms of working from home, working remotely, are actually not going to be reversed. And they're a part of the next normal that we are steering towards. If we have fewer people in the future go back to offices and more people work from home, that has all sorts of implications for business models that we're running today and for how we could configure uh, business opportunities that we want to pursue in the next few months and years. So the key feature of this plan ahead team is to plan across all time horizons. So this plan ahead team typically is next door to the CEO. Uh, they are operating in a very close interaction loop, sometimes multiple times a day, in order to provide updates to uh, reduce the uncertainty for some of the scenarios uh, and to firm up recommendations. If you take large-scale crises like the Deepwater Horizon spill for BP, the moment when they started becoming effective in managing the crisis, they actually changed the governance quite drastically. They had the CEO and a select group of management team members operate on a day-to-day -day basis, making decisions much faster than usually with much less alignment in the organization in order to stay on top of the crisis or even get ahead of it. One of the features of the Plan Ahead team, of course, is trying to help alleviate that pressure by bringing information in a much more synthesized version, decision-ready to the executive team, and not having them to grapple with the, I need to gather information, think through the scenarios myself, and do it all myself. Uh, these teams are typically staffed not with just strategy people or operations people. Typically, you take a very senior, experienced executive to head it uh, in the military uh, this could be the, you know, the chief of staff uh, who is directly operating the team. So it could be a very senior member of your management team who is full-time on leading that team and helping pull all the horizons together for the decisions and for the decision makers. 
the people in the team are often taken from the relevant operations organizations. So you have supply chain people in there, uh, you have sales and marketing people in there, uh, you have, um, depending on the issue that you're working on, specialist teams. Uh, This is another important feature of these plan ahead teams. They're modular. You actually group them by issue. Initially, you might have just a team that works the whole page with a cross-functional staffing headed by a senior executive. Uh, As you go through it and the number of issues heading your way is increasing, you might actually then have a team that just looks at the question of how to manage customer relationships, does the scenarios and the actions for that. So uh, the, the question of how you actually deal with issues and staffing of the team becomes very scalable with the scale of the crisis. We are obviously in the privileged position to be knowledge workers, so we can take our work home with us. So our focus in terms of getting people back to work needs to be primarily on those people who cannot work from home because those are running the factories, those are running logistics services, those are helping to provide services uh, directly for consumers around the world. Uh, Those people are now at home, and that's one of the reasons why the fall off is so much steeper. Those businesses are not like in the financial crisis, losing 20%, 30% of their business. Some of them are losing 100% of their business right from one day to another. What is the essence other than stopping the virus is getting people back to work. And let me just um, mention the main line of thought that most people are now pursuing uh, is that it has to come with testing. Uh, We have to increase our test capacity so that we can identify people who are not infected, who are safe to work with. And it has to come with protocols. If you think about what's happening in China now, where people are going back to work in the factories, one of the major makers of iPhones, have installed testing capacity at their factory in order to support government testing. So they have the ability at their factory locally to process up to 20,000 tests a day. And they have a rule, a protocol, that nobody can get into the factory area unless they're tested. Now, if you believe that these things can be implemented in our airports for a moment and assume you can go onto a plane and you know for sure that everybody on the plane has been tested before they checked in, that every crew member has been tested, that every maintenance worker who had their hands on the plane has been tested, and that therefore you can safely step into that plane without the risk of being infected, you have a bit of a feel for what these protocols could look like. They come in all walks of life. Uh, In the supermarkets, you have tapes on the floor that delineate lines that you shouldn't step over to not get too close to employees. You could see it that we figure out how to do similar things in restaurants. Uh, It will be very much up to us also as business leaders to accelerate the development of these protocols. They'll help us run our businesses safely. And with that, we can confidently work with local and federal authorities to convince them that lifting the lockdowns in an intelligent and cautious way as quickly as possible is the right path to go. We need to get the lockdowns lifted and we need to operate safely. Everything propagates incredibly quickly around the globe, especially if it's working right now. I think the bottleneck is uh, our ability to actually get social acceptance for these measures. When you think what's effective in China, that is something that's hard to imagine in many Western countries. You have apps that sign you a score. Uh, if you have been either in contact with or have been infected you, uh, uh, yourself, you get a red score, and that means restrictions. You cannot leave your house. You have a seal tagged to your door. 
where your neighbors monitor whether that seal is broken. Uh, if you break the seal, you go to prison. Um, uh, you have in Hong Kong wristbands that you're wearing, uh, electronic wristbands, if you come from abroad for two weeks. Uh, when you get home, you have to walk the corners of your house, and that's your geofence. Uh, if you go outside the geofence, the police is going to get you. There is now measures that help suppress the virus and help people get to a reasonable operating level that are, at least for now, totally unacceptable for many Western societies. I think Korea and Taiwan have shown that you can do it with less draconian measures. So the big question for us in stopping the virus, and more importantly, in putting protocols in place to allow us to go back to work while the virus is still around, is what is socially acceptable and how do we you know, change our behavior and our acceptance of some of these measures, at least temporarily, so we can get ahead of this. I'll just leave you with the last example. One of our colleagues' uh, daughter is a medical student three months from graduation, and she has just been drafted by the government of the Netherlands into service at the front of the corona campaign. Uh, she has to do six days triaging by phone from home, then she has to go six days in a tent in front of the hospital, triaging patients that are arriving, sending them to the right ward or to the ICU. And then she has to go for six days into the ICU intubating people. So she's a 23-year-old who is in the center of the hot zone, operating relatively safely. They have protective gear. They have protocols on how to keep strict hygiene. And if we can send our kids into the hot zone, we should be able to figure out protocols on how to operate other businesses uh, as well safely. So hopefully with innovation and the right protocols, we can actually soften the shock and get back to work quicker than if we don't. That was Martin Hurt at our Global Business Leaders Forum. His session was recorded on April 2nd, 2020. The situation surrounding COVID-19 is dynamic and evolving on a daily basis. For the most current information and McKinsey insights on the implications of COVID-19, please visit www.mckinsey.com forward slash coronavirus. You'll find regularly updated briefing notes there, along with articles Martin and his colleagues have recently published on the crisis, including Safeguarding Our Lives and Our Livelihoods, The Imperative of Our Time, and Getting Ahead of the Next Stage of the Coronavirus Crisis. We also encourage you to follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy and to connect with us on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.